Hey, hey, this is Soma79 with a special announcement. My new Mega Mix is up. My MF2 Mega Mix Oxidation Moons Day is now available. Go to www.soma79.com slash doom to check it out. It's a 30 minute mix that I did of MF Doom raps over my own beats. I really enjoy it. I hope you really enjoy it. So check it out. Tell a friend. Peace. Hey, welcome to the newest episode of the Articulate Ox Podcast. I am your host, Soma79. Thank you so, 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 so much for joining me today. My guest today is fellow Tim, Tim Lapertino. Tim um, helped write a book on Pac-Man this year, and it is a huge book. I have it over here. Let me see if I can lift it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. I love this book. It's... uh. Several hundred pages, tons of beautiful pictures, you know, like this one. But uh, this book is about the history of Pac-Man, and I loved getting it into with him, with him. As you can tell, as you've many watched the episodes before, I love Pac-Man. It's probably my favorite video game of all time. And um, it was so great talking to somebody as passionate um, about this as me, even more so. And we, he tells a great story about how he came about having his own Tron, Discs of, Discs of Tron game in his house, his own stand-up arcade game, and I was super envious of that. But Tim has done a lot of very, very cool things. Um, he wrote, he made this book called um, Art of Atari a few years back. And for anybody that has, um, as uh, well-aged as me, who grew up with the Atari 2600, you know the art of it was a really big part of it. And it it it, it really took these, these very basic, um, images and really helped pull more out of your imagination to, to, to kind of to finish the game in your own head and um it was a really fun conversation with Tim and um, I'm glad there's people like him out there doing what they can to help you know save the history of, of things like Pac-Man so uh thank you very much Tim um check out uh check out his um Instagram and you know just give a Google for him you're gonna find a lot of cool stuff um as for me Oxidation Moons Day my MF Doom mix uh 30 minutes of MF Doom raps over Soma 79 beats is available now just go to soma79.com slash doom and you can find it there and also uh my new EP with Pillsy Beats is coming out soon Quiet Life Loud Friends it is featuring copyright on Jay Sinatra, my man Rick Seaholm, all types of awesome stuff. I cannot wait to share this with you. Maybe you already have. I don't know when this is coming out. We uh, just do these things and they get released when they get released. So, um, all right. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you already enjoyed it. Hope you did enjoy it. Hope you're going to enjoy it. Hope all of this stuff. Thank you very much, Tim Lapertino. Moth out. Ah, moth out. Peace. Cause her man went from damaged kid to damn he's rich But she still can't stand the way he manages To never put nickels in the can for the cancer kids Plus he cheats at corn holding rags that he Welcome to the newest episode of the Articulate Ox Podcast. I am your host, Soma79. I am so excited for my guest today, Tim Lapatino, Who is the co-author of Pac-Man, Birth of an Icon, 
this book, it started popping up in my uh, my ads and I tried to resist it. I was like, nope, <laughs> nope. There was the deluxe version and now I wish I got. But um, I love, love, love this book. It was feel like it was written for me. There's so many. I opened up to the least interesting page, but there's so many awesome drawings and the story of Pac-Man. And I'm just rambling already. Tim, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. No problem. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing this and thanks for making this book happen. No, it's my pleasure. Yeah, you know, it was very much, you know, that book really, I mean, like almost everything I do. I mean, it came out of a real a real love for Pac-Man, but also just a real interest about like, why is it that we're still talking about Pac-Man 40 years later, right? You know, not just that it's this game that's easy to pick up and anybody can play it and it sort of has a universal appeal, but also just the character and the property as a whole. Why has it persisted when things like, missile command or you know defender have not right? right you know and i think that was one of my real interesting sort of a question that drove me to you know write some of the history of, of it it was interesting too because you get in the book about how this is something i might have known and forgotten but the pac-man cartoon was one of the first saturday morning cartoons ever if not like the first and in the, in the era of a be of like the, the laws changing and them being able to be a little more commercial about it i think that was yes. the first one out the gate perfect timing no, it's a huge. I mean, it's funny because you're like, oh, there's going to be politics in a you know a history book about video games. Yeah. But uh, you know, Reagan's deregulation of of TV and you know kids programming was gigantic and opened the door for all sorts of things. Everything from you know uh, Masters of the Universe to GI Joe to all these things where you know that would have never flown in the '70s. Now the '80s was this time where it was ripe, you know, for all these companies to go ahead and take this, you know, IP that they call it now and turn it into, you know, animated shows aimed at kids. Yeah. I mean, it started the era, you mentioned Masters of the Universe. That, I believe, was a toy line that then got turned into either, I think, a comic book and then maybe the cartoon and then that wonderful movie that I just saw for the first time recently. Um <laughs> I, there's this podcast, How Did This Get Made? And I they do they cover like bad movies. And during the quarantine, I, I aim to watch every one of them. And there's only three left that I haven't seen of like 300 plus. So yeah, no, I, I know the podcast. I You know, that movie's so interesting. And there's a whole backstory even. I mean, it's probably beyond the scope of this. But I think it's very interesting because the company Canon Films that yes. made that movie, that they have an unbelievably insane story as well. Like There's, there's a great documentary. documentary about them. I think it's Electric Brooklyn Brooklyn, right? Is that what it's called? Yep. 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 Nope, it's one of my favorite documentaries of Amazing. all time. It's so great. So it's worth a watch. And it puts it puts Master Universe in a different light, which I think is is worthwhile. Yes, yes, it's um, and it's a pretty, it's a fun movie compared to a lot of those kind of bad movies like that. And I'll also take Double Dragon. I'd never seen that before. Um, <laughs> how this game made made me. I was all in. Like I've always been all in on Alyssa Milano, so that helped. But like she was, her outfit in that in that cost in that movie is that is legendary. I could just you know write a sonnet to it. It's amazing. <laughs> um, so it's funny. I pulled up your uh, your your website, and I'm sort of overwhelmed by the amount of awesome IP that I see staring back at me. We we got Tower Records. I've given them a lot of money. Pac Man, giving them a lot of money. Spider Man, Captain America, Art of Atari. Like you have done it all. I try. You know, I try to stay stay busy. But you know, for me, it uh, 
you know, my background, I have a journalism background, but then I also, you know, I'm a, I'm a designer and creative director. So I do both those things and I've sort of toggled on and off uh, those, you know, over the last couple decades, but it really wasn't until, you know, I was really a corporate designer, you know, designing logos and packaging for, you know, food brands and, uh, you know, business to business companies and, you know, all the normal stuff that if you work at a design firm, that's typically what you do. And it really wasn't until, Art of Atari, when I, you know, wrote that book and had that published, that that really opened the door for me to sort of take all the geeky interests that I have, you know, toys, video games, you know, uh, animation, movies, all those things to really sort of actually work in that world, right? So I've gotten a chance to uh, do, you know, package design for toy companies like Super 7. And Super 7's amazing. I got a bunch of Super 7 Zarface stuff up there. They are the best. That's awesome. Yeah, no, they're great. They're a great group. And I, you know, really like working with them, you know, and that's really fun. I've gotten to work on things like Jem and Pee Wee Herman and, uh, you know, all the Transformers, G.I. Joe, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and that's really, really fun, you know, and I bring something extra to it because, uh, you know, it's the stuff that I grew up with. But also, you know, it's just it's just really fun to to work in that world. And so the last three years of also I was the uh the uh, head of design and creative director at a company called Moby Fox. And we made watch bands and digital watch faces for all sorts of these brands. So, I mean, it was sort of like a who's who of, uh, you know, nerdy pop culture brands, you know, everything from Marvel and DC to uh, Stranger Things and Hello Kitty and, uh, you know, Barbie and all, you know, all the, all these big stalwart, you know, geeky brands. And that's been really fun because, uh, you know, it feels like, okay, now the stuff that we grew up with, you know, it's sort of seeing, you know, there's another cycle of it all coming through and it's not just marketing to, you know, 40 year olds. It really is, right. um, you know, really is something that, you know, other generations are discovering things like Barbie. So it's just fun to be able to be at the wheel and, and sort of be part of that. I sense that you and I are probably about the same age. I was born in 79. So I, I was a child through the eighties. And like, I remember, you know, I, I, I must have spent, I don't know how long trying to find like a snake eyes action figure. And I never actually <laughs> got one because it does my local toy stores didn't carry that. And I was like, someone somewhere must have these. But that was it. It was like there wasn't like you go online and go, I want 96 different snake eyes and I'm going to customize right. it anyway. It's like we come from like, you know, this is some real like first world problems. We come <laughs> from like, you know, the secret, the secret wars, Marvel tour toy thing was everything to me. And then it was like He-Man was everything and like Star Wars figures but there wasn't really much else like right you know? well and you you got what you got you know you found what you found and you know oh i got this as a present from my aunt or whatever it is and you know or i traded with the kid down the block you know the idea that yeah. you know as long as you have money you could get uh you know you could get whatever you your heart's desire at this point i mean it's sort of this this crazy wonderland where it was just like you know i had a, a snake eyes and i had like an original snake eyes I don't even know, you know, I don't know if we got it or we tr I traded with a friend, but this is an infamous story in my family. My brothers and I were playing out in the yard and we decided we would play a great game where uh, we would take turn burying a figure, you know, in the ground, like under the, you know, the wood chips and things like that. And then if you walked around, you'd be like, oh, you're, you're so hot, you're so cold, you know, and then find it. Well, my two brothers buried snake eyes. They couldn't remember where they where still, they buried still him. out there somewhere. He's, he's still at my parents' house somewhere. Still, you know. still on a mission. 
<laughs> yeah, and, and so of course, you know, every time I see one at like a toy show or something, I took a picture of one. I'm like, "Hey guys, hundred bucks, you could get my snake eyes back." Yeah, you know, it is funny. It's but, like you end up with a few of those. I have obviously have a bunch of my figures on the wall. Like one, I, I told my girlfriend, I'm like, if something happens to me, one in every twenty of these is actually worth something. But I don't know how you're gonna figure <laughs> out which one it is. It is. <laughs> Take detailed notes. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's her problem. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so it's funny. Like it was even the same thing with with Atari games. So I, I have a few little um, Pac-Man things I'll show here. This one, obviously, a lot of lot of people had this. The original Pac-Man cartridge. I believe this was not a very well received Pac-Man game. I was too young to know better, but I believe this wasn't believe thought as a very good port. And I think a lot of people got this the screen burned into their their television because it was a pre screensaver days, if I remember that correctly. I don't know. I made yeah, yeah, you know, and they tried to to deal with that by cycling the colors when like you were not playing, like it would change. Yeah. But you know, it's funny. It's like yes and no. Like that. I think that game and the ET game, even for Atari, have sort of gotten somewhat unfair reputations. Yeah. Where I, you know, I think for with Pac Man, yes, it was not the arcade game, but it never was going to be, right? You know, or at least in the time, like the idea that what everybody wanted was the exact arcade game and try and keep it as close to the arcade. That wasn't, you know, ports from arcade to home console were still so new and i i don't think it was a clear i don't think it was clear at the time to definitely not to atari but not to everybody that like the idea was that it had to be the exact same thing it was going to be different you know the pac-man screen in the arcade is is you know vertical the you know the other one's a little more horizontal like todd fry who i interviewed um he's he's caught you know he was the programmer for the 2600 version of pac-man and he's caught a lot of crap for it you know over the years but i think a lot of that is sort of internet monday morning quarterbacking saying oh it was so terrible i mean it sold millions and millions and millions of right. copies and i think it might still be the best-selling uh atari 2600 game i mean it made lots of money yeah. Now, did it hurt, you know, Atari's reputation because it wasn't as good as the arcade game? Maybe. But I think this is, it forgets this, you know, it sort of assumes a lot of cultural knowledge that, uh, you know, that you would do this the way they did it in the early 80s, that we would do it now where you're like, I want a pixel by pixel remake. Right. So it was one of the things that I dug into with Todd. You know, we've talked at a couple different points, but it's one of the things that, you know, in the Pac-Man book, I interviewed Todd and we we talked about that, you know, and how does he feel about the, the reception of that? I mean, but also he felt good about it because it was an incredible selling game and he got royalties on it and it made him a millionaire. It's a miracle uh, it even exists. I mean, this is it's yeah. like it's you know, it's it's pretty impressive that it's even there. So sorry, Todd. I mean you throw any shade at you. Know? <laughs> um, it's funny you well, mentioned the ET and, game, and we played like, the heck out of it. I think yeah. that's the other thing, is it's not like we were like, Oh, we're this is such garbage that we're throwing. I mean, man, I Bonk, 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 bonk. Right. I mean, like I, I played the heck out of that as a kid. And so and this thing know, has the brothers. memory capabilities of like half an MP3. That's something to keep in mind, too. Right. It's like right. you can't put anything on. Like it's 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 like a yeah. miracle. This does anything. No, yeah. and it's not the same hardware. It's not it's it's not even as powerful hardware as what was running in a, you know, a Pac-Man arcade machine. So it's a little bit apples and oranges. I mean, it's, it's, it, there's, it's a huge case of Monday morning quarterbacking in a lot of ways. So you got to sort of take it on its own merits. And is it a fun game? Is it a Pac-Man ass game? Yes. It's different than the, you know, the arcade machine, but that's not bad. Right. And as a kid, like even you mentioned the ET game, like I don't remember thinking that was a bad game. It was frustrating to get out of that pit all the time. But I would say that the Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark game, that was 
a level of frustration that I I swear gave me PTSD. I should not have had to deal with that game as a kindergartner. <laughs> like that mess that that game was so confusing. Yeah, well, and and it's sort of inscrutable, you know. Whereas I feel like ET maybe you know, hey, you could have polished it a little bit because he right. only had a handful of weeks. weeks. <laughs> like... I, th- I think he had like six weeks to do it in total. But I mean, that's still insane yeah. for uh, you know, games normally take six months. But yeah. I mean, it's still kind of an amazing game if you understand it. I mean, I read the instructions when I was a kid. It was a game that we were actually able to win. Yeah, so, I, think I, I mean, beat that one. Yeah. Well, yeah, we. I I love that game. I thought it was really fun. So it 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 doesn't deserve all the crap I think that it gets. I can still hear the sound of VT walking though, as you were we were talking about it. I could literally still hear the, they're so buried into my brain. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Atari did make the mistake. I believe I heard this might not be true, and I might have read it. In the, in, I don't know if it was the ET or the Pac-Man game that they might have made more copies of the game than there were twenty six hundred consoles in existence, which is a way to do things i guess well i think the thought was that this would sell more consoles it would be it would be a uh you know a, another killer app in the way that space invaders was for the 2600 um but i mean that that game sold incredibly well as, as well i mean i think it was different than what people are expecting and maybe the lesson is you know if you're going to go big on that maybe you do make something that's more conventional because it, it's actually a pretty groundbreaking adventure game i yeah, mean it's, it's complicated yeah. you know it's different i mean you know you're finding all these pieces and you're assembling there's many ways to win it's not just straight up you know it's hard you know uh et's trying to shoot the bad guys with you know reese's pieces or something like that yeah. would have been a very conventional way to do it and yeah. uh like Howard that crappy Warsha. Back to the Future game where you're just throwing milkshakes at people, the one that got the <laughs> NHS. I'm like, what? Like, yeah, that's what we're looking for. But the ET right. game, it actually looked like ET. I mean, as well as you could. But that, I mean, one of the things too that about regarding this is some of the charm. I think is lost. I mean, that's and that's inevitable based on just what you're doing. But like, I don't think they, you know, the Monday morning quarter, Monday morning quarterbacking part. I don't think people realize how important charm was because I think if it sure. was, this drawing would probably be a little you know, more like what's on the cover of this book and um, how important that stuff is that it's like, there is really like a secret sauce to most of these super successful games that once you change a few things, it is, it's, it's a tightrope that's pretty easy to fall off of. Well, and I think it's so interesting because I think that brings us back to today, you know, say we're, we're going to make a new Pac-Man game, you know, Bandai Namco will come to us and say, this is how Pac-Man looks, this is how the game works, this is how it has to be, you know, and any brand that you're licensing the name or the likeness from is going to be that way. They have a playbook, they have a brand book, they have very strict rules because they're protecting their intellectual property. You know, back in the late 70s and early 80s, it was the Wild West. You know, it was very different, whereas that's why Pac-Man looks differently, because Atari was allowed to create their own look for Pac-Man. And, uh, you know, I go into this again, uh, both in the Pac-Man book and in Art of Atari, talking about the versions of Pac-Man that Atari came up with visually, because there wasn't an idea that, like, let's make it exactly like the game. So Atari wanted their version of Pac-Man to distinguish it from the other things, right? So they had their own art, which I think is great. You know, I mean, it's really interesting art. It's it's a fresh take on it. And you've got all these weird different versions of Pac-Man out there yeah. because, you know, licensing and all that was not the same. It's funny you mention that because I have this record right here, and you'll notice... So up here, I'm trying, this is like trying to look at the back of my head with two mirrors, but this is really the original one. This was the Japanese Pac-Man drawing, wasn't it? With the feet and the red eyes. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. is seen alongside here with a different Pac-Man that obviously recognized him as Pac-Man, but isn't in any way, you know, 
probably not the first thing we think of. And then we have the more traditional one in the font in this wolf that we've never seen again. And on the back, you see, you know, a Miss Pac-Man and baby Pac-Man. It doesn't really match up either. But I mean, we have on this one record, like for, in the moon's also a Pac-Man. That's trying right. to eat the ghost and Pac-Man. <laughs> it's like... Well, and, it, and it's even more complicated than that because you've got the Pac-Man logo there, but then that one with the red eyes, yeah. that actually came from, that's not Japanese. That's actually the Midway version. Oh, yes. And, what it is. You know, and uh, and that was on the side art, which is, it's not Japanese. It's not, you know, it's not the later version. It is, it is their own version. And I won't spoil this because it's in the book. And it was one of the big sort of reveals for me is I wanted to find out who did that art. And we, I think we figured it out, but then yeah. you see the rest of that art that you've got Pat McMahon was uh, a midway artist and he did those record covers and he did the art that's on the record. And that's done in a totally different style. That's sort of an homage to the early, uh, Disney cartoons and Tex Avery and that kind of stuff. So there, there wasn't an idea that like, oh, you know, all this stuff has to move in synergy. And I, as weird as it is to today, I actually really like that. And I think it's fun because, because you get to see all these different artists take on it. it. You know, it's like the IP becomes this sort of interesting, flexible thing. And frankly, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do a Pac-Man book is because there was a really interesting look at what became this huge pop culture thing, you know, instead of just being like, Hey, you know what, we're going to license Pac-Man for some t-shirts. I mean, you know, the midway, there's a picture really in, is a picture in the, in their, in the book where there's the entire room. It's like a catalog shot. And it's like, I was like, I had mo a lot of that stuff. I had the board game. Wish I still had that. There was definitely like a comforter or a pillowcase in my house. Like I had so much of that stuff. It was just, and it's crazy too because it's just a little little chompy guy getting pills. Like our like we are we filled in so much of the backstory and created this richer world out of it. It's it's pretty. It's it's a story that you wouldn't expect it to be able to fill up. Essentially, a textbook here. This thing could hurt you if you're going to carry around. But like, there's a real story here that's like to your point about even the Reagan administration. There's you know it ties into this the development of the world of pop culture. It's it's crazy. Donkey Kong right. hasn't done this much though. We right. did give I mean, us it, Mario. So it, it came at an interesting time where you know like I think the. They were thinking about making money rather than, oh, you know what, we really need to I mean, there's a there's a term in licensing today, you know, they call it logo slapping. Like, you know, you got a product and you just want to put a logo on it. Yeah. And that's great. Yo, crusty you know, the clown and, thing, crusty the clown pregnancy right. tests. <laughs> <laughs> right. But then all but with Pac-Man, like you said, like the all those different iterations of Pac-Man on the watch, Pac-Man on the record, like, you know, it's sort of, you know, served to broaden. It, it was world building at a time when world building was not considered important, right? You know, the the plots to the cartoon or the, you know, the record, you know, the songs on that record that you're holding, like, those are not like canonical Pac-Man. I mean, it's all kinds of weird stuff yeah. going on there. And it's kind of fun, you know, and there's yeah. something interesting about like letting everybody sort of take a swing at it rather than having some master plan, you know, licensing plan. I mean... Uh, you know, so I, I think it, that's that that is very interesting to me, and it's it's cool to kind of unwind those things, and that's kind of what we tried to do a little bit with the book. One other thing I'll say about Pac-Man too is so to tie it into like the way television has changed since like the '80s. There, every once in a while, you see they they remake some absolute piece of trash show from the '80s because they're like, well, when this was on, 
uh, 80 million people watched it at the same time. And you're like, well, that's because the Dukes of Hazard was all that was on. And we had three stations. <laughs> Bring it back is not a great idea. And it doesn't hold up over time. So you could probably make a similar argument with Pac-Man. But then you start playing it. And you're like, this is just as fun and playable now as it was back then. It's like, it's it's not my favorite game because of nostalgia. It's my favorite game because I still pick it up and enjoy playing it more than any other game. And that's something that shouldn't be lost about it. The game. Right. It's a legit good game. You know, it wasn't all I, marketing. It was a good game. I, yeah, totally. And I, I think the time when I and I, I do have some love for Dukes of Hazard, so I just want to give a shout out. Oh, uh, well, yeah, I think I do, too. You know, I haven't watched Bo it, and Luke. Now, but I'm scared. Too. I mean, that Dodge Charger, man, what a cool car. I mean, yeah, maybe you know, a new paint nothing, job, but <laughs> right, right. Say nothing of the the Confederate flag on top. I mean, that is a that is a B.A. car. I yeah. mean, that's that's very cool. I but had I, as I much do... Dukes of Hazard stuff as a kid. I had that board game. I had that cop. I had all that stuff, too. Oh man, that car. I mean, just an epic car, but you know, I think the, the welded door shut, the doors yep. that are welded shut. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I think it's interesting because it's, you know, for me with the Pac-Man book, like when I realized that maybe someone wanted a, you know, why would there be an interest in a book? You know, I was at my kid's school and talking about like, uh, you know, it was when my daughter was, I think, kindergarten or first grade, I think, maybe. And it was like career day. You know, what does your dad do? And I said, oh, I write about video games. And and I said, how many of you know who Pac-Man is? And all these, like, six-year-olds raised their hand. Wow. And I was just like, what? Like, I, you can't all have parents that are my age. So what's going on? But, you know, Pac-Man is this cultural force. And this idea that that game, you know, anybody can still pick it up and play it. And it's a legit fun game. Like, you know, you have to celebrate that as a pop culture artifact. Like, you know, yeah. Pac-Man has been through every, every time there's a new sort of video game technology, Pac-Man's there, right? You know, Pac-Man's been done in virtual reality and augmented reality and, you know, console, arcade, uh, you know, like all these Side different scroller, ways. All these different things. Yeah. Right. You know, he's been a Google doodle. He's been a, you know, a yeah. Google map. I mean, like all these crazy things, Pac-Man. Pac-Man's always there because it's this classic gameplay that is durable, you know, and stands the test of time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's up there with Tetris, the closest thing you could really compare it to in terms of, of something that it just is that right combination, that secret sauce of it being, I don't know, it's just, it's, but, I mean, Missile Command, if I, I if I never play Missile Command again, I'm probably, I remember <laughs> that game infuriating me as a child. That's funny. Um, Defender, I could go back and play a little bit, I used to like that. Oh, before I forget, um, you got something I saw in your, in, in your Instagram that I am extremely envious of, and I wish I wore the shirt today that I have discs of Tron. Yes. Now yes. Tron to me is like the blue lights around here. This is definitely Tron. I, Tron to me is like the, I, I love Tron. I'm ready to go down to Disney to go just on that ride. And like, I went, when the Tron legacy movie came out, I flew out to California adventures just so I could go to that Tron bar and stuff. Nice. No one else cared but me. But um, do you have a do you have a, a similar love of uh, Tron? I, I do, and it, it sort of parallels some of my interest in Pac Man in the in the sense that like, you know, I was a little kid when Tron came out. You know, I saw it on VHS a lot. It was on cable. You know, but I think it had sort of this Recently outsized. Acquired. Nice, nice. Actual oh, dialogue, uh, music, and sound effects. I haven't listened oh, to this see, yet. Oh, see, I don't I, have that one. I'm, I'm interested to hear how that sounds. I saw this at a record store recently, but it didn't have the record in it. So I'm like, I'm ordering that now. And it's, it's you know, I mean, this art is beautiful. It's Yeah. And they, I remember I watched the, do, the, the, the commentary. Sorry to cut you off. The commentary in the Tron DVD. And they said if they had known how much work it would be to make this movie, they never would have made it. Totally. And they certainly wouldn't release it the week before E.T. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, and it's Tron's so interesting because for a movie that really didn't do that well, I mean, it sort of gained a following, you know, cult following. But I mean, it's really had a sort of an outsized effect on pop culture because the way we think about computers, the way we sort of, you know, you think about yeah. 1982, you know, most people did not have a personal computer. You know, most people had never even sat down at a computer and personal computers were a very different thing. People thought of computers as these room sized things with vacuum tubes and, right. you know, you know, reel to reel tape, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I think it gave a, sort of a voice to what does a programmer do? Well, a programmer types things in and, you know, interacts with this world and this, you know, and then the visual side of that, where it's like, oh, you're inside a game. Maybe that's what it's go go is going on there. Yeah. You've got like the you neon for the users. lights. Right. You know, so you've got like, you know, and that even that aesthetic, that really simple polygon yes. aesthetic and all the glowing lines and all this stuff like that has stayed with our culture, you know, and it's it's really had a big influence, maybe almost as big as something like a Blade Runner. Yeah. Right? You know, in terms yeah. of uh, visual aesthetics. So, yeah. you know, Tron is amazing. I mean, it's interesting The the movie is a lot of fun. I, I have a lot of love for the, the sequel and, you yeah. know, the subsequent stuff. You know, I like the I played the, the console games. I played I the arcade it. machine. Yeah. The um the rec the, the third game on Xbox a while ago that I got years later and I enjoyed the crap out of it. It was great. Yeah. But Distantron, yeah, I, mean, I do I love the console game. I love the um the uh the arcade game of Tron. There's two of them. There was the discs one and then there was the other one. They're right. so friggin' beautiful. Just the blue plastic just gets me, you know. It's yeah. Well, you know, and so and so I'm actually working on another book and what I'm working on a couple, but one of the what, books that I'm working on right now is a history, a visual history of Tron. Shut the front and, door. Yeah. Yeah. So still talking with publishers about it, but uh, the work is continuing and get that you know, done because they're talking about Tron three again. <laughs> right. Hopefully. Right. No, I know. They're let up. Um, if you're listening. Get off your ass. <laughs> yeah, J Jared, if you if you're listening and you want to write the forward, uh, you know, like yeah, let, let's make yeah. that happen. If he doesn't, if he doesn't do it, feel free to call me. I'm more than happy to. <laughs> All right, you guys are tight, right? Yes. Okay, good. Okay. No, I was gonna say to write the forward. I can't get you with Jared Leto. But if you want to get a huge, oh, huge drop down, I'll be more than happy to write it forward. I can sign it as Jared Leto. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah. So you know, I think I mean with the Tron game. So I think the the story is that you know there was this really interesting synergy with the video game. You know, Midway. Who, so I'm I'm uh I'm in the Chicago area here, right? And Midway was located right here in my backyard. And you know, so they were the ones responsible for bringing Pac-Man from Japan to the U.S. and really helping make it this huge hit. But then they also licensed Tron as part of the, the tie-in with this movie, and the game made way more money than than the movie. The game was yeah. actually super successful, and it's fun. And was the game and, was the game first, or was it um... at the same time? It, okay. it was coinciding to release. Right. So, and, and that's the interesting thing is it's a it's a movie about video games, but then there's a video game. That's about the movie, you know, and then yeah. like in the subsequent movies, that that game about the movie is actually a canonical game yeah. in the movie. So it's, it's this crazy, right? It's this crazy snake eating the snake's tail. But yeah. but like that game was very successful, and George Gomez was the guy leading that team. He was one of the younger programmers at Midway, and he sort of took it on, and they pitched this game internally, and uh, they won the pitch, and they built it. And it not only is the game really fun and challenging, it's a tough game, but that the cabinet really brings the Tron world to life and people remember it very fondly. And so that, that, uh, you know, that arcade machine did really well. And so they said, Hey, you know what, you want to do a follow-up because there was part of the game that they weren't able to include. It's this disc 
battle sequence. And so they turn that into Discs of Tron and they release it in two versions, right? They release it in a regular stand-up arcade, but then they release it in this huge environmental cabinet that you could literally step into it and stand in it, right? And the idea is you have speakers behind you, you have lights around you, and it's this immersive cabinet, right? You have, a, there's even like reflective services in there that sort of make it so it feels more like the screen itself looks more immersive. I mean, there's all sorts of things. And and I had never played the the, the arcade version of Distatron growing up because they were a little rare. They weren't Yeah, I don't think I had either. Original. I didn't even know that I really knew that it existed until I, I downloaded it a few years ago looking for the other game, but. Yeah, 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 but I so uh, you know I I had never seen one until in person. I mean, I played it you know online and stuff, but I had never seen one until we brought one in for this uh, this exhibition that I helped uh, mount at the Chicago Game Space, this video game museum. So we had a sort of a playable history of Tron in this this exhibit about Tron and uh, a friend of mine owns an arcade and he had an environmental disc of Tron and we, they wheeled this thing in here. It's massive. It's six, six, four, it's 700 pounds. It's, it's gigantic. 700 right? pounds of Tron. It's, Oh, it's huge. It's it's huge. And so he brought it in and you know, we got to play it and it was amazing. But it was only a handful of weeks later. I was visiting some family here in the in the suburbs. And um long story short, uh I found uh, just a couple blocks away from where my parents live, my my uh niece told me that she's like, Yeah, I saw somebody had something sitting on their curb that was tr Tron base. And I was Holy like, Holy crap. <laughs> I was like, Is that an arcade machine? And she's like, I don't know. And so I I'm like, well, all right, we're getting in the car. So I, you know, hopped in the car with my brother and my niece, and we pull up, and sure enough, somebody was throwing away their environmental discs of Tron arcade machine sitting there. It had been sitting there for a couple days because the the garbage man had come by and they had stuck a note on it saying, "We will not take this because you have to break it down." It like, got rejected too... as garbage. That yes. is. And you were there to save it. So I did. So I, I went, I, you know, the car's not even stopping. I'm jumping out of the car and I'm ringing the doorbell and I'm like, Hey, are you getting rid of this? And she's like, yeah, I don't think it works. You know, I don't want it anymore. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, can I take this? She's like, sure. So I, you know, got some furniture dollies and ratchet straps and we put this thing on wheels and we wheeled it down the street and, you know, blocks away, you know, wheeled it back into my parents' garage. And uh, I am now the proud owner of a, Environmental Distatron machine. It's my first arcade machine, and it works. It works all. We were able to get it to get it working. I I made your help because my friend, you know, yeah, owns you know three hundred machines. He knows how to do it. So yeah. we got it working, and it, and it's awesome, and it's in incredible condition, and uh, and uh, we get to play it now. I got an electric organ a couple of years ago too, in a very similar way. And if it was an inch bigger, and if there wasn't a random eighteen-year-old kid there to help me, I wouldn't have gotten it. But like. It's amazing, and I love I have it. But the idea that you, I mean, I mean that nobody would take a Tron machine for a few days is kind of insane. Because even someone think they might be able to flip it or something. But like yeah. the fact that like you came across it is there. That must have been wild. <laughs> that must I, have been a I weird could, day. <laughs> I I couldn't believe it. You know, I could, I mean, it, it's sort of like you know, hey Tim, pick any arcade machine that you'd ever want to own. Right. For it me, would it be either this song. one yeah. or yeah, this one or the Star Wars cabinet, you know, the cockpit one, yes, yes. you know, and I, and so sure enough, my dream machine is sitting on this, you know, the side of this in a quiet little suburb, uh, wow. you know, there that's got to go in know. the book somewhere. Like, oh, it was amazing. I mean, and you know, word got out because I, uh, a friend of mine runs a pretty popular arcade machine blog and I talked to him about it and he wrote a story and suddenly, you know, a week later, uh, you know, I was getting interviewed by the Washington Post about it. So um, it's now all over the place. It was kind of funny.
Were the original uh, owners, they, what was their like attitude towards it? Were they just like, yeah, I don't know what a Tron is. Like, they, I, you know what? They just didn't want it anymore and they thought it wasn't working. And, and she really didn't want to talk about it any more than that. So I, I don't, All it right. has some sort of backstory that I'm, I just don't know, but. It's haunted. Uh, it's tronted. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody said this, uh, you know, in one of these articles, they said one man's trash is another man's tron. Exactly. I mean, so <laughs> that's actually kind of applies to like the way Tron has sort of been treated. Like you think of like the Simpsons where yeah. like anybody's seen Tron? No, 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 no. no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait. Yes. Oh, dope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Um. Wow, man. Yeah. If I show up at your door playing that, tr- that Tron <laughs> game one day, I promise I'll call first. Um, Bring some quarters. That- yeah, this sort of um, made me think of something. This has come up in a couple other episodes. But there's, there's another thing around that same period that had a very big influence on me. Do you remember a movie called Cloak and Dagger? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With yeah, uh, Dabney, Dabney Coleman, Coleman and right? the kid from E.T., um, mm-hmm. uh, Henry Thomas. That was another movie that I was based on a video game, a su- surprisingly violent children's movie. Yeah. Um, it's pretty dark, actually. Yeah, and the, it was funny. The the little girl that got in it, they definitely were like, "Get us a Drew Barrymore type," because they they probably couldn't get Drew, but they definitely got little Drew for that one. But um, yeah. that was another. Do you know anything about the, that video game? Because I I tried to. I guess that was a game, but I don't know if it was ever released or anything. I tried to find I, information about it, but I couldn't. You know, I I remember they showed it in the movie. Yeah, I remember coming across. I don't know that it was complete, but I I know it wasn't. I wasn't ever released. I don't think the movie did very well. But, you know, I mean, there's Atari product all over that movie. I mean, it's like heavy-duty Atari product placement. Um, but, yeah, beyond that, I'm not sure what the rest of the story is. It is. It was a weird error because it's like you have essentially – that movie was in some ways an advertisement for Atari. But it was also a pretty, you know, kind of scary movie. You know, there was also a time when we were making RoboCop and Terminator games for kids. And, like, I remember we had those for the Nintendo and those were all over the arcade. It was just – I don't know. We all turned well, out fine, yeah. I think. And it's so interesting. I mean, I, I say this to my kids a lot, you know, now, you know, my kids are, you know, not too different age, you know, you know, eight and 11. And they have all these programs and all these things that are very narrowly aimed right at their ages, right? They have, any age you have, there's something that's appropriate for their ages. But, you know, there was a lack of that kind of stuff. Right. You know, there was stuff that was aimed at kids generally. But, but then you got to wonder, like, what are they trying to do? Like, you know, all the Rambo movies. There was a Rambo cartoon. Yeah. There was a, a RoboCop cartoon. Yeah. These are cartoons based off of hard R-rated films. Right. You know? Even like and, that Nintendo cartoon, I believe had characters from NARC in it. A game about, like, <laughs> busting drugs. You're just like, and I know they had right. to use whatever IP they had from Acclaim or whatever, but, like, still. <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of weird. Like, some of that... You know, I, I think some of it is just people didn't really take it. I don't know if they wouldn't take it seriously because, I mean, there's people, there's creative people making those decisions. But in some ways, people didn't really worry about that. Like, you know, right. did they worry? Hey, you know what? You watch, you have the RoboCop action figure and watch the RoboCop cartoon. Are you going to go and watch the super violent, you know, you're going to seek out RoboCop? I mean, right. I, I mean, you know, you don't want this to be a catch-all, but, you know, you say like, you know what? It's just, it's just a different time. Well, the definition of what was appropriate for children has changed over time, too. And the other thing, too, for about sure. a RoboCop is back then, if you watch RoboCop, it wasn't like your dad had a RoboCop gun somewhere in the house. These days, you watch RoboCop, your dad may have a RoboCop gun somewhere. In the- so it was like the level of fantasy yeah. was like so much more removed than it kind of is now, you know? Right. Well, and it's, and it's a satire, right? It's a, I mean, it's all about the the evils of of big corporations and, and violence, you know? I mean, that now... 
is some of that lost on people? You know, right. people, I mean, these are the same people who sing along to, you know, Reed. Born in the USA and Bruce Springsteen. Right. You're like, you know what? This is like a super negative, you know, right. song. This is Or ultra conservative people who love Rage Against the Machine or half the people <laughs> who love Fight Club. <laughs> read the lyrics, people. Read the, know, lyrics. read the lyrics. Yeah. Um, all right, so I want to get back to Art of Atari for a second, though I did notice something here. Sky Captain and the Art of Tomorrow. We talked a little bit about how did this get made earlier. This was a how did this get made movie. Um, this movie was wild. What what did you do related to that? So I were I was one of the editors on the book that's called Kevin Conrad's Sky Captain and the Art of Tomorrow. So Kevin and his Kevin was the art director on that movie. His brother Kerry Conrad was the director and um, you know, they basically started as making this movie on their computers and they said, you know what, we're going to make a film that's grandiose and big in scale and totally wild. And we're going to do it with, uh, you know, on green screen. Like it wasn't, that was not done. That had never it was a really done in quick that, shoot, that wasn't it too? I think, I think they, they uh, it, it. well, it started out that way, but then, then they actually like, you know, sold it in and they were actually able to make this pretty good sized budget movie with big stars attached to it who really yeah. liked the idea of doing something different. So you got Jude Law and Angelina Jolie, but Kevin Conran. Yeah. Takes yeah. A punch to the face at some point, I think from one of the, <laughs> Yeah, so Ke Kevin Conran was the art director, and he basically, you know, since it was his film with his brother, he ended up designing every set, every wow. uh, prop, all the costumes. You know, super creative guy, amazing artist, very and, innovative uh, looking movie too. It's it's yeah. um it's it's a movie unlike most you'll, you've you've ever seen in your life, but it has a an all as a look so particular to itself that I'm sure influenced a lot of people. Yeah, totally. So so Kevin and I had uh, connected a couple years ago. Because I was interviewing for another book that I'm also working on, because uh, I, and that's another story. It's this retro futuristic illustrator named Arthur Radabaugh, who had a like a Sunday newspaper strip, color comic strip about like what the future was going to be like in the in the like sixty in the seventies, like early seventies, wow. late. 60s. This dude, I'm already fascinated. I'm already all in on this guy. Yeah. <laughs> and and I mean, super interesting. Google him. Uh, you know, really unsung illustrator. But Kevin and I had him in common because I could clearly see in Sky Captain that there was some influence there. Uh, so Kevin and I, you know, connected, and we're, we've been working on some other projects. But I came in, and he said, "I, you know, I'm doing this book about my experiences, sort of basically designing the world of Sky Captain." So we did that, and I was able to jump in and help a little bit on the editing uh, for that book. So I love that movie, and I'm just totally amazed. I mean, Kevin is continuing to work in Hollywood. He does all kinds of cool stuff. He's directing a animated feature right now, so he's still uh, very much in that world. Oh, yeah. um, that's so, a movie that like it, it's one that that's going to get you more work if you make a movie like that because people are like wow if he did that with what he had there what can he do if we give him this and it's like you, you just know you're investing in somebody who's a real artist yeah yeah 100 percent yeah speaking of real art the art of atari book which i've seen on the shelves a lot i feel like i own this but i couldn't find it around my house but i definitely gave it a good read somewhere and now i'm gonna try to track it down um i grew up on atari as you talked about before uh, the there was there was obviously a big difference between what you saw in the box and what you saw in the game, but it didn't really bother me. Like the like for me, box art's huge. It's like I don't think you can judge a book by its cover, but you can judge an album by its cover, and I and it's fun to try to judge a game by its cover. But we're looking at these a lot of the art of these sort of feels almost Alex Ross esque. Like it's it's almost like this super real. 
Um, what was the the mentality behind that? Why, you know, these days everything would be super cartoony, I think, especially if you're going to appeal to kids. Like, what was the, who were they going for with this? Well, I mean, you got to put it in its context, right? So specifically with the 2600, right? Because that's where they really had the most of this painted artwork. But the idea, you know, was that... The only video system with wood paneling that I'm aware of. That's right. (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, like, so no one had really marketed you know, cartridges, right? You know, video game cartridges in a stored environment. How do you do that? So George Opperman, who was the art director of Atari and really was one of the brains behind this, you know, they sort of said, okay, well, how are we going to do this? How are we going to market and sell these things? Well, we need packaging. Let's pull from things like album covers and movie posters and paperback novels, and let's create some engagement, some emotion, you know, and sort of how do you communicate? Video games are still kind of new, right? You know, it's like, it's a tennis game. It's a basketball game. It's a tank game. Well, you know, you can show, you know, the pixel art of that, but that's like a literal thing where they're trying to create some connection and some emotion is something that you already know about, right? So, you know, baseball, you know, tennis, you know what a tank looks like. And the idea is they were trying to capture some of the excitement of it. So they have illustrators who are, you know, classic, you know, trained illustrators who are hand illustrating and they come from, from colleges. They come from, you know, sort of, uh, you know, advertising where, you know, George Opperman came from, they come from, they're borrowing from editorial, you know, when illustration is really being used as a tool to sell things and they're doing that. So they're putting all that stuff together and that's what, that's where you get the, the 2600 artwork. And they're not trying to say, Oh, we're, we're trying to get you to think that the video game looks like that. I mean, that's like a 21st century read back into the 20th century where this was very much like you didn't expect these things to be exactly the same. The idea is that you're conjuring this this idea and this image before you ever sit down and plug the cartridge in. They're but what it dramatic. Also, yeah, and what it also did though is it also like filled in some of the gaps. These are really simple games, but providing this just iota of storytelling then made you say, okay, you know, Breakout is not just about a, you know, rainbow bricks and a rectangle. It's about an astronaut in space or a, a guy with a racket. And it, and it sort of gave you this connection, you know, from the gameplay world to the world of your imagination. And it really sort of filled in some of the, you know, the, the um, story gaps in your mind. That's a great point. Because I think, so you have the box art, which is, you know, the very dramatic, very, you know, well-trained artists doing them then you have the game which is you know very pixelated boxes and i sort of as you're saying that i remember that as when i used to play those games i feel like my mind would would meld the two because especially when i'm thinking about adventure like adventure is a really hokey little box moving a key around game but i remember the dramatic art completely remember the first time i saw it that was my my white whale of a game that i could never find anywhere because they just didn't it was the snake eyes essentially i couldn't find it anywhere like snake eyes figure and then but once i got it my brain did a lot of combining those images together and haunted house is another one like that for me yeah yeah, when it shows you the power, you know, Hitchcock used to say, hey, you know, the scariest thing is the power of your imagination. It's what you right. don't show, right? Yep. And you think about Haunted House. I used to play it as a kid and it totally freaked me out. Yeah. And it's not just because the, the, you know, the actual game itself is super scary, but it's the combination of like, you're in this dark room, you turn off the lights, you know, you have this right. box art that's super creepy. And, you know, all of that stuff mixed together in your brain ends up becoming an experience that's greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. Yeah. So do you do you think that there's a compare like that there's like 
a comparison you make the modern gaming there i'm not a big modern gamer if i play anything it's usually older games but do you think that that's something that's still a major concern now i i think it's just a different approach you know people want to see their known ip they want to see something that kind of looks like the game because they feel like oh if you don't why are you doing that right you know then then that begs another question now that being said uh you know i've been working with the people at modern atari to do some uh to art direct some of the artwork for some of their new game releases right and so i came on board and saying hey guys you know what Atari has an opportunity. There's a precedent for creating game artwork that's different than the actual. I mean, they can make these games look beautiful and amazing, and that's great, you know, in game. But why not pique people's interest and do something that sort of, you know, is a nod to to history and say, you know, make the game art look different and and let people bring something else to it. Uh, and so that's what we've done, you know, and that's that's been really fun. And I think I think people respond to that. I don't think you have to be an Atari fan. I think it's just and it sort of opens your mind to be like, you know what, we're not just going to render a scene right out of the game and put it on the front of the box. You can do that. But like maybe there's an opportunity for a little more creativity and say, OK, we're going to come to this great artist and say, how would you do this in your style how would you do this in a way that is moody and atmospheric and you know it sort of captures some kind of interesting emotion and then you can still have the bonus of going in and playing the game so i don't know that every video game company can get away with that but i think audiences are also more sophisticated than we give them credit for yeah. and so i think the idea of doing that of sort of having that little bit of like pleasant dissonance between you know what does the key art look like and what does the actual game look like i think i think that's that can be fun i think that it's a great place to play it's funny too because there's, there's a lot that gets said about what atari did wrong but there's so much that atari did right and that they really created something that like even the logo has endeared to this day and it means something it's 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 picked it's perfect and the trying to capitalize on that branding i think there's a lot of people who probably felt a little bruised by the by you know atari's downfall but like that branding is still gold and it's like those games yeah. are still super playable you know it's it's time yeah. has come again well, I mean, that's why I want. That was one of the reasons why I wanted to write Art of Atari is because you know, I'm I come from a logo design world, right? You know, so like, you know, I've designed dozens of logos for companies and and organizations, and there, there's sort of this uh, Mount Rushmore of logos, like you know, the famous logos that people know, the Apple logo and the Polaroid logo and the Nike swoosh, you know, all these different brands that are sort of like super famous because of what they've meant to the culture and what they've obviously meant to their companies. But Atari is right up there. And I realized that like, you know, as a designer, I had no idea who did that. And so I started looking into it and realized that the you know, George Opperman, the guy who really sort of was one of the foundational bedrocks of the visual history of Atari was the one who designed the logo. And that sort of led me down this path to writing that book. So were these, um, did these artists back then, did they get a cut of these games or was it more of a markup situation? Yeah, like more of like a comic book thing where it's like you drew uh, it's it. work for hire. It. Yeah. yeah. Work for hire thing. It, that, that did not, that screwed a lot of artists out of a lot of money. Fortunately. Well, and it was just the expectation though. If you're, I mean, like you think about it, even, I mean, even today, I mean, like a lot of these illustrators, not all of them, but a lot of them were 
you know, Atari employees. So they were full-time artists, you know, and I mean, that's pretty unusual to be a, have a steady corporate gig as a full-time illustrator. I right. mean, especially now. There aren't a whole but, lot of uh, companies that hire them. Disney, Marvel, you know, it's not a lot. Well, but even Marvel, like that. Well, I mean, more of the Marvel movies. I think now they actually oh, yeah, have, yeah. like, yeah, digital arts. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's so many contract people. So the idea that you could either try your luck at being a freelancer or you could have a steady, you know, gig. Right. You know, and sure, some of them ended up doing other things later on, especially when Atari sort of, you know, was going downhill. But, uh you know, I think, yeah, there just wasn't an expectation that you were going to get that. Now, even the programmers themselves had to fight for a cut of that, what made them successful, you know, and eventually that, that did happen. Um, so did you grow up in Chicago as well? Or Yeah. So when you were, when you were a kid, did you, did having Midway sort of in your backyard, did that mean anything to you? Because I, I realized that like a lot, Atari is, I think, based in the Boston area and a lot of video game stuff was, but I, that didn't registered to me as a kid yeah so atari was in california now they did okay. have other people working in the boston area who worked on some of the later consoles and things like that but you know what uh, growing up here because video games were not the same kind of cultural cachet like we didn't know i mean when i was a kid you know when during the nes era you know i think we started cluing into the fact that there were you know, video game companies in the Chicago area. And Chicago is really interesting because it's one of the birthplaces of pinball. I mean, it was yes. the epicenter of pinball and jukeboxes for many, many, many years. And that's part of why we had all these video game companies. You had the Midways, you had Williams, you had Bally, uh, you know, all in the Chicago area because they had access to, you know, making chips, to the manufacturing, to, you know, the supply chain, to the building cabinets, all that stuff kind of came out of there. But, you know, Chicago's still a little bit of a sort of unknown as this hub for video games. So that's part of the reason why I, you know, why I wanted to write, you know, Pac-Man Birth of an Icon. That's why I'm excited to do more with the, the history of Tron, you know, hopefully a book, because it's it's a history of video games and pop culture, but it's also the history of my hometown. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's... Yeah, I mean Chicago is a very is a very eighty city with like the John Hughes to it as well. It's like it's, sure. it's it's there's a lot of stories there from the eighties that kind of originate from that area. And um, yeah. I don't know, felt like a million miles away when I was a kid. But. Well, we made some upgrades since then. Uh, Chicago's yeah. a great, you know, it's you know it's a little safer. Um, you know, there's some fun stuff. You know, some I I still you know I always love you know my city and I still consider it's a world class city but it, it's just cool to see things like video games and pop culture still coming out of it I mean, we've got a great indie game scene here I mean awesome uh, barcades and things like that and and that you know if you know where to look the history is still uh, hanging around now, one thing I, I mentioned before that this book kept popping up in all of my ads and it was popping up on Facebook. And there was one comment in particular that was pinned by somebody um, that, that got pinned that I kept seeing that talked about how one thing they wish there was a little more of in the book and forever. This book was 10,000 pages. I'd read all of it was that they wish that there was a little more about the bootleg stuff. Now, I, as somebody who has gotten a cease and desist from Namco over this shirt, um Tupac forever <laughs> I thought this was brilliant I right, whatever but like um I don't know I I I'm not gonna fight it this is a, a long 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 time ago but um I do know that they are um they are hardcore about their IP compared to other yeah. companies yeah they really I mean that 
you know, I think so much of the value of Pac-Man besides the game is still the IP. So they are pretty serious about protecting it, you know? Um, so, I mean, that's part of the reason why we didn't include that. I mean, we had to fight pretty hard. Even there, we have a whole chapter, you know, extensive time devoted to the making of Miss Pac-Man. And we really had to thread the needle to do, to tell that story. But I was really excited about talking about how that came to be. I mean, it's just one of those unusual stories you know, and some of the some of the reason is, uh, you know, and you you can read some of this in in the book. Yeah, I don't want to But also, give it you away. can read it's about it online. Miss Pac-Man has a complicated legal history, mostly because it was such a weird journey to it becoming yeah. a game. But, um, you know, I think that's a lot of it. Uh, you know, Miss Pac-Man is just, you know, this multi-parentage of Miss Pac-Man. But it's also one of those cool things that would have never happened today. Right, and I will say, if I go back and play Pac-Man, I'm probably more of a Ms. Pac-Man man than a Pac-Man, because like there is something about they did the slight tweaks. Did um, I don't know. It did. It worked out. I, I would say that I probably see more Ms. Pac-Man games in the wild than I do see regular Pac-Man games. You know. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of them, you know, and I think uh, I mean, Ms. Pac-Man even outsold Pac-Man for a, a good chunk of time there. Um, you know, and, and I think that's an interesting thing. Like, you know, in Japan where Pac-Man originated, it was a moderate hit, but here it just kept going, you know, and then midway seeing that they said, Hey, you know what, there's an opportunity for us to, you know, kind of double down. And, you know, that led to Miss Pac-Man, but then also junior Pac-Man and, yeah. you know, the Pac-Man, uh, you know, the pinball machine. I mean, there's so many sequels that they did and some other planned ones because it was just a, cultural juggernaut in some ways and they were going that's to ride what, that as long as they could that's what led to this high talk high uh high quality nice. game nice. by midway valley that i've had forever this yeah i mean pac-man was on everything these games like i remember this i got a lot of um mileage out of this in the back of my parents vw microbus <laughs> for sure yeah. well you know and it's like pac-man like right you know right. i think that's now the expectation is i mean you can buy a pac-man version that's this tall and the screen's about you know the size you know half the size of a credit card right. but uh you know back then it's like okay you know is this mildly amusing yes you know is it pac-man i like pac-man sure right. is it less frustrating than cubert yes a game <laughs> that i love but diagonal was not a direction that atari did well back in the day like well, actually, if you look at the if you look in the uh, instructions for that game, they instruct you to turn your joystick so that it, it's diamond shaped, so then it's easier for you to do. Sweet you know? Jesus! How did I? You know what's funny? But... I still have the instruction manual. <laughs> I just found all my old Atari manuals and my Atari Force comics and all that stuff. If I go down there and see that, I'm probably gonna break something. That's um, that's You've that's been playing genius. it wrong the whole time. Is that it? Yeah, my brain is broken now. Um, I love Qbert. Q I, I, I want to love Qbert. Qbert to me was like the Pac-Man that never was. It was like we're gonna get another try, like another bite at this apple, and they kind of yeah. got like halfway to the moon on that one because it is endearing, but it's not. It's not that. It's it's Gonzo to Kermit, I would say. You know? For sure, but I mean, but popular enough that uh, you know it got a sequel. Yeah, you know it got it got multiple uh, you know cartridge versions. I mean. Uh, actually, Chicago Game Space, the museum that I've done multiple exhibits with now, we did the 40 Years of Pac-Man and the, the Tron exhibit. They're doing an exhibit uh, on Qbert, and they've got Warren Davis and uh, and the other creators coming in for uh, the opening of that exhibit. Uh, it's going to be a 
pretty soon here. It's this fall sometime. I got to make uh, it up to that at some point. I haven't been yeah. in Chicago in years. I'm doing this thing where I get um a new, t- I get a tattoo of a leaf every time I visit a new city, new state. And I just got five. I just got back from, I went to um Alabama and Tennessee and um, Georgia. And then I, I had to get other ones for a couple other states I'd been to. And so I got to go to Chicago again. And now I feel like I have an excuse to come to these museums because it sounds just awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What are the best places to visit out there? Like if, if someone's going to come out on sort of a little gaming weekend, what, do you, what are the places you don't want to miss? Well, I mean, so Chicago Game Space is a great and this playable, a small but playable museum. Um, Logan Arcade is one of the great barcades, you know, uh, just great, you know, great games, good drinks. Uh, and then I think you've got to visit, if you're coming here right in the suburbs, is a place called Galloping Ghost Arcade. And I believe that they have the most arcade machines on the floor of any any arcade in in north america i think it's more than 600 games at this point uh and you you know pay 20 bucks or whatever it is to get in and you can everything's set on free play and you can i mean it's almost overwhelming how many games there are to play uh so that's a bucket list item you know over and above all the outside great things to do you know you've got lake michigan which is awesome we have the chicago river if you're here you really need to go on the architectural boat tour which goes up and down the river uh and it's one of the coolest ways to see just an amazing city you know uh, you know is that the river about... from the fugitive where they say um if they can die green one day a year they can why can't yes. they die blue the rest? i think of that like yes. i don't know why that pops in my head like once a month at least yeah, no, that that's a great. Uh, I think the director of that movie is all, was also a Chicago area guy, so there's a lot of love for Chicago in that. Movie. I had um, my brother went to Northwestern, so I I um, I've been out there a bunch back in, the, but that was obviously a long time ago. Nice. Um, yeah. What what to you? Uh, I was just trying to think about what some of my most frustrating games were back in the day. Ghosts and Goblins is a game that I <laughs> should should not even be legal. That and Dragon's Lair can both. There should be a certain segment of hell for those two games. <laughs> um, are there any in particular that you think of that like, and are there any that you pick up now and go, okay, now that I'm an adult, I can conquer this? Because there is something too when I go back and some games seem super easy and some games I'm like, how do they ever do this? I feel like things like, I mean, we played the heck out of Contra, you know, when I was a kid. You know, I saw like a Contra a- board board game the other day when I was like at a store and I didn't even pick it up. I'm like, what is that like? You just throwing dice to each other? I, I don't know. I, I love that game, but I, I'm like, I remember this being easier than it is, yeah. I, you know, and it's like, the, you know, maybe I just don't have the same skills that I had when I was 11 or 13 or whatever. But, you know, I, I like that game. What else? What else doesn't hold up? I I don't know. You know, I, I tend to be pretty positive about it. I mean, I feel like the Turtles games still oh, hold so up really well. Games, I yeah. mean, you know, I, but, I, you know, but also like I appreciate at this point playing games that I don't have to learn a new language or like get into this gigantic backstory. I yeah. mean, so I, I'm still down with asteroids and missile. I think I have an appreciation for missile command with a trackball that uh, I, I don't know if I had when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. But, you know, yeah. any, yeah. So with your, this is something I used to do with my, my brother and I used to do with my Atari 2600 as a kid, is that we kind of got bored with the game. We found that if you took the on-off switch and sort of put it in the middle, it would sort of scramble some games and you could play them. Was that something else? Was that something you used to do? Or was other people uh, aware of this? Um, I did it some. I mean, I think they call it frying the frying the cartridge. Oh, I think that's the term. But you know, I, I think it, it can hurt your cartridge. But oh. we used to do that sometimes, and you'd get like an unintentional effect. That's um, how hard up for entertainment we were. Like I remember doing it a lot <laughs> with the Spider-Man game, the one where you climb up the. Oh uh, heck yeah! The that was the best one to do it with. 
That's funny. I I loved that game. I you know yeah. again you're like okay it's barely Spider Man but you know what that was that's what we had you know it's just we had that and we had the Nicholas Hammond 1978 Spider Man TV show we had yes. the Lou Ferrigno Hulk and we yeah. liked it you yeah know? we loved that's it what we had yeah it's it, we had we had the greatest American hero he had to be our Superman <laughs> when they made that Flash TV show in the early 90s I was like get out the VCR tapes like this is gonna be it I love that show just, oh I think it was good I I yeah. showed that to my kids just like a, not even two years ago and they were all in they're like why isn't there more of this you know yeah. they were like there's six or seven or eight seasons of that new flash show why is there only one season of this yeah. well they brought him yeah. back he's like the yep. he's yeah which is great I mean it's like I love how DC is really you know celebrated their past like, the flash is my favorite character I actually it's probably no coincidence my very first action figure ever was a flash superpower figure that i still have oh from uh yeah the superpowers lines those are great great yeah, toys they love those the yeah. firestorm one i mean i'm a firestorm yeah so like i mean that that kind of nailed it for me i mean that's like the late 70s early 80s characters where you're like this character is such a product of its era you know but yeah. uh you know it, it's just awesome firestorm was the one that i always wanted never get because I, I know i bought a funko pop of him recently because i wanted to like I was like, and he, I, it's that the imagery of it. That and I finally got, they redid a Hobgoblin figure that I always wanted oh, from yeah. back in the day. And like, he doesn't get enough merchandise, but you know, I don't know. Um, totally. I got a question for you as a fellow Tim. This is something that's been coming up recently amongst my friends. Um, do, would you ever consider going by Moth? Because it's in the <laughs> middle of Timothy. Because we started this as a joke, but now people at work are calling me Moth. And I, I kind of hated it, but it's kind of grown on me. How do you, any thoughts? I mean, I think, I think you could do worse, I, uh, but I think you got to kind of, you probably have to start by going by Timothy first. That's, and then well, that's gets, what I do. I do go by. Okay. Timothy most of the time. Yeah. Yes. See, I don't. The only person who calls me Timothy is my mom when she's mad at me. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm Tim for the duration. So I, I had a fight to earn that one. Um, so I think I'll stick with it, but I, I think moth's not bad. I think you could do a lot worse. I think it it gets better the more you say it, and because um, I think Timmy to me is rough. Like I, I hate yeah. when people call me Timmy because like I I'm not never been a gym, but I feel like Timmy is worse than Jimmy. I don't know. There's something about the eye sound of Tim that's always I don't know. Maybe I'm well, you're either wrong. Tiny Tim or you're Timmy. Yes, I know. You yeah, know, it's like there isn't. What do we got? Like Tim Allen. Like we we're not very well represented in popular culture, so there's lots of that's room fun. for us. Yeah, that's agreed. Yeah, so I, I I lean into the moth. Go for it. Yeah, Mo I think Moth Johnson, and it's especially Moth Johnson so, sounds like, sound like a wrestler from a Spider-Man cartoon. Yeah. And now Spider-Man's going to fight Moth, moth Johnson. Johnson. Yeah, and I'm definitely <laughs> not going to win. I'm the glass show with that league. Yeah, 100%. Uh, but, but still, you can look scared. You know, he's the guy that, you know, Spider-Man picks up and, like, you know, throws him around. Yeah. I was watching something the other day. Um, I it's uh, oh the new Twisted Metal show, and the dude there who played Sandman, who was Lowell from Wings, he looks ex he he they, they, he might as well have been auditioning to play Tombstone from Spider Man. He's obviously he's not going to play it because like he was Sandman. But I was like, dude is Tombstone right here, and <laughs> I was all for it. I've never played Twisted Metal, but that was a pretty it was a pretty enjoyable the first few episodes that I watched. That's awesome. Samoa Joe and all that stuff. So, um, so anything, I mean, this book is amazing. Um, I, this will definitely be one that I revisit many times over the years. It's, um, this is one that will sit on my coffee table for a long time. 
even like a picture like this, like I stared at this. Maybe it's my little spectrum in mind, but I stared at this for a long time. <laughs> so it's an amazing book. I recommend everybody go out and pick it up. Um, I don't have my glasses on, but what was your your co-writer's name? Uh, Arian Terpstra. Arian Terpstra. Um, Pac-Man, Birth of an Icon, available all over my Facebook feed and all over places. Like I said, there's a deluxe version with a, with a record of um, Pac-Man Fever, correct? Yep, that's right. Yeah, in yellow vinyl. Yes, yes. That's super cool. There's a little sliding case that goes in, and I kind of wish I'd gotten that one. But hey, you know, I'll have this forever. So uh, anything else you want to talk about while you're no, I think that's it, man. Yeah. Well, I hope that Tron book comes to happen. I'll definitely be uh, pre-ordering that as soon as it is. And yeah, man, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for awesome. joining me. Well, Moth, thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, bye. Some motherfucking dub in there. You feel me? And smoked on city blocks for low if any guap Same shit, eh, yeah, my first full gray hair One more felony, I might have my first full gray beard It's way weird, feel like that was only yesterday I'ma slowly blow like parolees, the homies guesstimate When I blow, don't roll me like you know me, no hit the exit stage Left of the tackle spray, redirecting your steps this way If real shit progressing, got the steel with the vested Even in the summertime, I will Smith and Wesson You cutting from the grassy, so underground Nardwar wouldn't know what the fuck to ask me I stick it in the stomach, now let me hit the throat She call me Mr. Drummond So many different strokes Your punchlines, Mr. Drummond Audience, Mr. Jokes To your family, return from visit, folks Some love Some, Cause her man went from damaged kid to damn he's rich But she still can't stand the way he manages To never put nickels in the can for the cancer kids Plus he cheats at corn holding rags that he won So she lost interest like porno after she comes My DM started jingling baby as it was done Two seconds later I can hear the snapping of her gums She calls me half Dodge Challenger, half Lip Gallagher I'm happy that I luckily sat next to her in algebra I try to hold her down but I just couldn't balance her Between the million meetings that I keep in my calendar Plus odds aren't too sloppy that I know why my it's blowing up probably, but I should check just as well Call the cops, see if I can get a hold and tell If that's copyrights, yell, raising hell inside the holding cell Table we take charge I got a style you can make love